Now that we're a few chapters into this book, uh, one of the things that I've um, particularly enjoyed about this book is uh, something that uh, I appreciate about all of Scripture, and that's its honest depiction about humanity. Its honest depiction of Israel, it reveals and shows Israel with all her warts, with all her problems, with all her successes, but, but also that points to us with all of our warts with all of our successes. I mean, we have seen it, right, with Israel, this roller coaster of emotion that they've gone through, this vacillating that has taken place between rejection and obedience, between sadness and success, between lamenting and rejoicing, right? That's what we've seen chapter after chapter. It seems like one chapter is good, and then the next chapter is followed by bad, and then good and bad, and it keeps going back and forth. And and that's what our lives can feel like, can't it? I mean, my life feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Like, one moment I'm full of what I think is obedience, and then the next moment it's I'm falling by the wayside, right? And one moment I'm celebrating and rejoicing, and the next I'm lamenting and sorrowful. It's one of the beauties of Scripture, is that it is honest with our lives. It is honest about our human condition. And last week we saw how Israel had responded to the rebellion that they had been gauging in by responding with repentance. Samuel led them into repentance to turn away from their rebellion, to cry out to God and say that they had sinned. And in response to that, Samuel set up that stone, that remembrance stone, that Ebenezer, so that they would remember, right, that when difficulty came, when, when uncertainty arose, that they would remember God's faithfulness. But would they? We just had a chapter where things were seemingly going well. Well, if we're watching this theme, then we might be expecting that we're about to hit a chapter where things aren't going so well. And so will the people remember? When problems arise, where will they look? Well, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment 
of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be, your per, to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his city. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we ask that you would help us. For Father, we are in need of your grace and of your care. We need you to help us so that we would see your truth, that we would be uh, in love with your beauty, that we would want to follow you in all your ways. And so we pray that you would help us now that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. So many of you know that for the last number of months, I've been uh, renovating my basement. Uh, You know this because uh, my wife has been posting pictures on Facebook. And so, so maybe you've seen some of the progress that's been going about in our basement, how for the last few months I've been tearing out walls and rebuilding them, been doing framing and insulation and, and drywall and mudding and painting and all the different things that, that go into renovating a room or a basement. And, and I've been able to do many of these things myself. Um, I've been trying and slowly learning and doing these things on my own, trying to save a little bit of money here and there to do it. And, and so, so the progress has been made, and, and I can say it's done. <laughs> it's done. I'm thankful it's done. But, uh, but as, even though I knew some of the things that I was doing and how to do some of these things from previous attempts at, at drywall and other things like that, there was one thing I had never done before, and that one thing was crown molding. I had never done crown molding. I had heard it was very difficult. It's not like putting in baseboards. You have to do different sorts of cuts, and it's a little counterintuitive. And, and so I wasn't really sure what to do. And so I, I grabbed a friend, um, Matt Satello, and uh, I knew Matt, one of our members, had, had done crown molding before. And so one Sunday, I grabbed him after church in the gathering area, and I said, Matt, you know, you've done this. You've, you've learned how to do this. You have the right tools. So, so will you come over and help me do this? I know that you can help me. And Matt said, well, well, Penny, of course I'll come help you, but I have to tell you, I've only done this once. <laughs> 
I've only done this once. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I've seen your crown molding. It's beautiful. It looks wonderful. You're, you're great at this. You'll be able to teach me, right? Compared to me, you're an expert. And he's like, he kept trying to, you know, reduce expectations and bring it down. And we had this back and forth, back and forth. You're, you'll be great. No, I'm really not good. No, you are. You know, this back and forth. And then finally, his wife, Marina, interjected. Because Marina was standing there watching and listening to this conversation. And finally, she interjected and said, y'all don't need to be worried about this. Because as long as you have Steve on speed dial, any problem can be solved. <laughs> now, the Steve she's referencing is another member of our church, Steve Hanko, who uh, is an expert carpenter. And, and taught Matt how to put up crown molding. And, and whenever you have a problem, you can call Steve, and Steve has an answer. And so we did at times call Steve, and Steve would teach us and show us and tell us the right way to do things. When you have a problem, it's nice to have a Steve. <laughs> And we know this, right? And we know this not just when we're renovating a basement, when we're putting up crown molding, when we're installing a door. We know this about lots of areas of our lives, right? We know that when problems arise, when uncertainty comes, it's nice to have someone who knows how to deal with that problem. Like when we're not feeling well, right? In our worst moments, we look at WebMD, but in our best moments, we call the doctor. Right? And they prescribe for us the right drug or the right medicine, and they help to analyze what the problem is, and we start to feel better soon. Or, or just this past week, right? Like the, the market went down, in, in case you haven't been watching the news, right? The market took a huge downturn, and it's not doing very well. And so probably many of us were thinking, I need to call my advisor, right? Or, or we did call our financial planner, you know? What, what is my response to this? This is a problem. I'm uncertain about my retirement. What do I need to do? This is what we do. When problems come, when uncertainty arises, we look to someone who may have a solution. And this isn't just what 21st century Americans do. This is what people have been doing for millennia. This is what Israel was doing. You see, a problem arose in Israel, and they're going to seek a solution, and the problem they're confronted with is a problem of leadership. We see it immediately, the problem in verses 1 and 2. Right? Verses 1 and 2 tell us what the problem is. Samuel, who has been leading Israel, is old. He's getting advanced in years, and they know that his time of leading Israel is going to come to an end. And so Samuel, what does he do? Well, he takes his sons, and he makes them judges. Now, just as an aside, Samuel had no authority to do this. There's no place in the Old Testament that allows for a judge to set up his successors. And in fact, the office of the judge was not one of hereditary succession. So Samuel actually had no authority to do this, but he did nonetheless. And that's actually a problem because the men that he put into this place, his sons, Joel and Abijah, well, they were scoundrels. They were scoundrels. We're told they didn't walk as Samuel did and they didn't live by God's ways and that they turned aside for gain and they took bribes and they perverted justice. They were greedy and money-hungry, and they were swayed by those with wealth. And Israel had been down this road before. 
You remember in the very first chapters of 1 Samuel that, that Eli, his sons, who were to follow him as the priest, that, that they too were scoundrels and they were a giant moral mess and, and Israel knew what direction they would take them. And so the elders of Israel now, when confronted again with a leadership problem, they, they decide we're not going down that road. Right? We're not going to do that again. And so they actually assess the problem pretty accurately. Samuel's going to die. We need someone to lead. And the men that he has picked to lead us, well, well, they will just lead us into sin and immorality. So where do they turn for their solution? Well, they turn to their solution in in a very problematic way. We see it in verse 5. Behold, they say to Samuel, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now at first glance, this doesn't sound that bad, does it? I mean, we we need a leader. We need someone to follow. And so just give us a king, right? Joel and Abijah, they're not going to be good leaders, so give us a king. This doesn't sound that bad. But but look at the response that this elicits in verses 6 and 7. We're told the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So if if they need a leader and they ask for a king, so what is the problem? Why is this so displeasing to Samuel? Why does God say that they have rejected him? Well, now perhaps this is where like our American and democratic ideals and instincts start to kick in. And we start to think, well, well, well clearly the problem is a king, right? Because who wants to be ruled by a king? We certainly don't, right? We fought a whole war to get rid of a king, right? I mean, King George, that's, that was the king, right? I'm Canadian. I'm a monarch, right? So, okay. King George, get out of here, right? We don't want you here. We don't want you here, right? That's basically what we said. And so that's maybe where we start to go. The problem is with a king. The problem is with a monarchy. And that's how many have actually read this passage. That the displeasure of God and of Samuel is because of their desire for a king. That the office of kingship that a monarchy is sinful in of itself. But I actually think that's a wrong way of reading this passage. I don't think that's the right way to read it. That the problem isn't with the office of king or of a monarchy. I, I think this for, for a number of different reasons, because there's actually a number of passages in the Old Testament that speak positively of the king. And just as an aside, um, we don't have time to go through everything this morning. And so what I've done is I've actually written a paper. It's about seven or eight pages. I'm going to post it on Realm this afternoon or tomorrow. So if you're interested, you can go and read that uh, at your leisure. Um, And don't worry, I'm not going to go through all seven pages right now. (laughs) We don't have time for that. But let me point out a few examples that come before 1 Samuel. In Genesis chapter 17, When God makes a promise to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations, he says that of those nations, there will be kings that will come. And in Genesis chapter 49, God, through uh, Jacob, bestows a blessing upon Judah. And Judah says 
or excuse me, Jacob says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until it comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations will be his. You see, the scepter and ruler's staff is speaking about a coming king. And so we there have a promise of a king. Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is perhaps the most important passage in the early parts of scripture that talk about the king, we have the kingship law that instructs and dictates how the king is supposed to act and to rule. And then in the book of Judges, right, we have the refrain, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, but we also have the refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. You see, the book of Judges, particularly the second half of the book, is preparing us for the coming of the king. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah, after Samuel is born, she erupts into song. And part of her song, she sings, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There are many other passages we could turn to. I haven't even looked at the rest of 1 Samuel or started to move into other portions of the Old Testament or even into the New. But what becomes very clear and very apparent is God actually intended for there to be a king in Israel. That part of God redeeming his people was in sending a king. So what's the problem then with Israel's request? Well, the problem isn't with the office of the king, but the problem is with the type of king they were asking for. You see that phrase, like the nations. That phrase is key to us understanding what is behind that request. They wanted to be like the nations. And if they were to be like the nations, that meant that they were going to be rejecting the Lord as authority, as king over them. I mean, look at what God says in verse 7. He says, they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. You see, God describes their action as forsaking him, as serving other gods. That's what's implicit in their request, that they are actually rejecting the Lord. You see, one of the things that those passages like Deuteronomy 17 tell us is that the king, one of his purposes was not to remove authority from God, but actually to point the people to God's authority. And yet the king that they're asking for isn't going to do that. Implicit in their request is a rejection of God. And what is implied becomes explicit in verses 19 and 20. So after Samuel, he responds to God's call to him to go and warn the people. And so Samuel warns them about how the king is going to rule. He warns them in verses 11 through 18. The king is going to build up an army, and he's going to take your sons and daughters and the best of your fields and your vineyards, and he's going to serve himself rather than serving you or the Lord. And so how do the people respond? They hear this dire warning. So how should they respond? Thank you, Samuel. Man, we, we dodged a bullet. You know, don't give us a king like the nations. That's how they should have responded, right? But what do they say? Verse 19. No. There shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us 
and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, I want you to think about how crazy this statement is, how insane it is that we would have a king who would fight our battles on our behalf. This is such a crazy statement because think about the last battle Israel was engaged in. It was just last week we talked about it, right? It was in just one chapter ago when the Philistines were pressing in and making war again. What did we hear? The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I mean, why would these people want a king to go out and fight on their behalf when they had the creator of the universe fighting on their behalf? I mean, God had shown himself to be the great warrior, to be the one who would battle and to wage war for them and who was victorious. And now they're saying, well, we want a king who can do this. You see, to be like the nations was actually forsaking the Lord. It was serving other gods. It was nothing short of idolatry. What they were wanting was the benefits of the kingdom, security, safety, peace of mind. They were wanting the benefits of the kingdom with no king, with no true king. And I can't help but think that maybe that's what we want sometimes as well. I think sometimes that that we want the benefits of the kingdom apart from the king. I mean, let's think about this. Let's just think about our, our posture, our conversations, our discussions, our lives. Right? Do our discussions about, about community, about humanity, about human dignity, about authority, about family. If people were to look at our social media feeds or look behind our doors or hear our conversations around the dinner table... You know, there, uh, there's a political season that we're in, in the midst of. Didn't, maybe you all haven't noticed, but, right? I mean, it is everywhere around us. It, our, our conversations about politics and leadership, if people were to hear those things, would it reflect that we are longing for a king and a leader like the nations, like the world, or a king that's like God? Would we be a people longing for a king who leads us to the Lord? Yesterday I was reading a book. It has absolutely nothing to do with this uh, sermon or this passage or this idea, but the authors brought up this question. They asked this question. They asked, is, is the only difference between us and our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, is the only difference between us and them, the only noticeable difference, That we're here on a Sunday morning while they're home reading the paper? That was a powerful question. That was one that I had to think through. Because if that is the only noticeable difference, then really my life is saying that I want all the benefits of the kingdom. But I don't really want the king. I want the king on Sunday morning for about an hour and a half, but not the rest of my life. So what do we want? One theologian put it this way, speaking of how Israel requested for a king. He says Israel's request for a king was perfectly rational. Yet Yahweh received it as rejecting his kingship. He went on, he said, our proposals and our solutions then can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. 
So what do we want? Do we want a king after our own liking? Do we want a king like the nations? Do we want a king who's going to just give us the benefits of the kingdom? Or do we want a king who is the picture of God's care, of God's protection, of God's law? A king after God's own heart. Do we want a true king? Because, friends, that's, that's what Israel needed. That's what we need. We need a true solution to this problem. And so when Samuel described this king who is like the nations to the people, his character and his rule, the people should have realized this is nothing like the king that has been described in places like Deuteronomy 17. Because in Deuteronomy 17, do you know how the king is described? He's chosen by God. He doesn't trust in horses or wealth or power, but he trusts in the Lord. He, he's one who writes down God's law and he reads it in the company of the people and he keeps that law and he is one who serves the people, not himself, and one who points the people to the Lord. That's the true king. And y'all, for a time, if we were to skip forward, we would see that that's what David is like. That's how David functions. If we look ahead in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 13, we're told that David is a man after God's own heart. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from a few months from now when we get there, but, but David, when he is going to war against the giant Goliath, and he stands before the giant, do you know what he says? He doesn't say, look, I'm strong. I killed lions and bears. I can take you down. No, that's not what he said. He stood before the giant and he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, for the battle is the Lord's. He didn't look for another king to fight for him. He knew that the Lord would fight his battle. That was a king who lived under God's law and pointed the people and nations to the Lord, and that is what Israel needed. But friends, as good as David was, for he was the greatest king that Israel ever had, as good as David was, what the people need, what we need is a king even greater than David. A king not like the nations, but one who has come from a far off nation. A king not of this world, but a king from another world. That's the king that we are in need of, and that's the king that God has given us. Because God has given us his son. We heard how Jesus is described in our assurance of pardon. The book of Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It goes on and says, listen to this authority that he has, this power. He is the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of them were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, what it is telling us is that Jesus is David's greater son. That he is the one who is promised and who has come, and he is the one who is coming again. 
to reign and to rule as king over the earth. The people got it right when Jesus went into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Y'all, when we have a king like that, why would we want a king like the nations? So friends, let us not look to the world. Let us not desire to be like the nations. Instead, let us look to Jesus because he is our perfect king. Let us look to Christ because it's in him that we live and move and have our being. Let us look to the one who created the heavens and the earth and is David's greater son and today, right now, sits upon David's throne and will one day come again in glory. Let us look to him. Y'all, that is the king that we need, and that is the king that God has given us. Let us not ask for a king like the nations, but a king who is over the nations. Our king, Christ, our king. Amen. Let us pray. Our heavenly father, we do thank you that you have given us the one whom we need. You have given us the one who has reigned and ruled the one who has created the heavens and the earth, the one who has given his very life for the sake of his subjects. And so we pray that we would live as his subjects, that we would submit in every way with our words, with our actions, with our minds, we would submit in every way to his ways and that we would claim with confidence, with boldness, with joy that Christ is our king. And it's in his name that we pray and God's people said together, Amen. I'll invite the ushers to come forward and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.